Hello, this is Dr. Ed Hill, host of This Week in the Word, where we grow in our knowledge of the Word of God and our walk with Christ. We're continuing today in this episode in our walk with Christ through the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the second book of the New Testament, so find the Gospel of Mark that's after Matthew, and we're going to go to verse 1 of chapter 15 today in just a moment. There are a few things that I would like to say today as we begin to prepare to go into Mark 15, and I would like to point out, and you might have heard this in the last episode, it is very helpful if you look at what is called a harmony of the Gospels. And a harmony of the Gospels brings the four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, together in one place, and it arranges their verses chronologically so you can see the flow of the events that are spoken of in the four Gospels because the four Gospels do not each record every single event that is included with the trials and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we go through this today, you may think, well, I thought that this or that happened at the crucifixion. And uh, you're, you're probably thinking of something that is mentioned by Matthew or maybe by uh, Matthew and Luke, or you know John and Matthew, but not not drawn out in detail by Mark. So that w- that will help you bring all of this together. Something else that I would like to point out today, as we go into Mark 15, is if you listen to the Mark 14 episode, you remember that I mentioned that Christ made uh, several predictions in Mark 14. And two of those, and I did not, uh, thinking about it, I don't think that I adequately emphasized these enough in the last episode. Um, I mentioned, uh, obviously, that if they, the two disciples who went into Jerusalem followed the man with a pitcher of water into the, the house where they had the Last Supper in the upper room, and... Um, you know, I mentioned that, and, I, and so one thing, though, that I did not emphasize is the two greatest predictions that Christ made that were about to happen, and one of those we're going to see in this chapter, in Mark 15. So in Mark 14, he predicted his death, and in Mark 14, he predicted his resurrection, being victorious over death. So in Mark 15, we're going to see the death of Christ. One thing I will emphasize before we even go there is if you look in John, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just turn and read this, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 18. In John 10, 18, Christ is speaking, and he says, no man taketh it from me. Now, he was talking about his life. In fact, I'm going to go back to verse 17. So this is John 10, verses 17 and 18. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. In other words, that he might rise from the dead. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. 
I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So as we read here in Mark 15, this wonderful passage about the the trials and the crucifixion and death of Christ, please do not read this as if Christ was a uh, hapless victim, a uh, unintended martyr. Christ marched to the cross from the time in Mark 1.1 when Mark speaks about the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born. Jesus came from heaven. He laid aside the, the rights and privileges of his godhood and he humbled himself and became a servant, even unto death, that you and I, as we trust in him as our Savior, might be saved. So all of Mark, the action gospel, is where Christ is making his way methodically, directly to what happens in Mark 15. This is not an accident. It's not an unfortunate end or an unexpected occurrence. He predicted it, and he predicted that he would rise again from the dead, where we see that in Mark chapter 16. All right. Well, let's go to Mark 15 now, and I'm going to uh, make my way to, uh, to Mark 15 here. So in Mark 15, and I'm using the King James Version, that's just a, what I grew up with and I, almost all of my scripture memories from that, so I enjoy using it, but um, you may be using New American Standard or some other translation of the Bible. Mark 15, verse 1, And straightway in the morning the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus, and carried him away, and delivered him to Pilate. So, in Mark 15, 1, we see that Jesus is condemned. And if you read all of the Gospels, you will see there were several stages of the trials of Christ. But the final result is what the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, and the whole council wanted— and that was to see Jesus condemned. So they condemned him of being guilty of blasphemy, which, of course, he was not. But they condemned him that way, and they took him to Pilate. Now, why did they do that? Well, they wanted him killed. Remember, they said that in Mark 14. If you go back and read it, it's blatant. They wanted him dead. Now, the Jewish people because they were under the oppression of the Roman Empire at this time, governed by Rome, they could not execute criminals, but Rome could. So they go to the Roman governor there, Pilate. Now, Pilate was a, uh, an experienced government official. He was, uh, if I remember correctly, a, a military veteran, well-respected uh, in Rome, and he was the governor, and they bring Jesus to Pilate. So Mark 15, verse 2. And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? 
And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. Now I believe that Pilate was asking him, Are you claiming to be the king of the Jews as the, as the chief priest and others accused him of being? And here's the thing. In the Roman Empire, there could be only one king of the Jews, and that would be, uh, when you get right down to it from the Roman mindset, that would be the Caesar in Rome. And Pilate was not allowed as a governor to tolerate any other kings other than Caesar. So this was kind of a trap they put Pilate in and a trap they thought they put Jesus in. And so when he asked Jesus this, Jesus says basically, you said it. He didn't deny it, and, and he agreed, I, I am the king of the Jews. Verse 3, And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. So we see him condemned by the Jews. He's interrogated by the Romans in the person of Pilate. Then we see Christ rejected. Now, at that feast, he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them, that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. But the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, what will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, Why? What, what evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. So we see that Christ has been condemned, he's been interrogated, and we see that he is rejected. He is rejected by the Jewish people if they only had known and realized who he was. It would have simply been amazing to what God would have done. But he was rejected as the true rightful Messiah, the true king of the Jews. Rejected as God. And Pilate agrees, in order to keep the peace, to have Jesus crucified. Now, some believe that he had him scourged, which he did, but that he had him scourged in order to try to keep from crucifying Jesus, and the scourging alone was enough to kill a man. Jesus went through that. So in that scourging, I believe Jesus essentially was tortured. And once that had been done, he was to be 
put on a cross to die. All right, so in verse 16 to 18, before they take him to the cross, we see what happens. He is mocked. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band, and they clothed him with purple. In other words, the, the, what a king would wear, the color a king would, would wear. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him. And bowing their knees, they worshipped him. We see Jesus mocked and abused here. Verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. So he's to be crucified and we believe from comparing the Gospels that Christ carried his cross uh, perhaps to the gate of the city and the soldiers seeing that he was not able to carry the entire cross about the half a mile distance from the gate of Jerusalem to what is called Calvary, the place where the crucifixions were held. They compelled Simon who was passing by to bear that cross. And they bring him under the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. It was a, a round hill, a very prominent hill like the, the back of a skull. It was uh, roughly 15 feet above the, uh, the street or the road below it, uh, very prominent. And so we're going to read what happened here when he was crucified. Now, as I'm doing this, I want to make a few points. You may want to go on your own to Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, this is a prophetic psalm about the crucifixion. This means this psalm was written uh, over a thousand years before Christ was crucified. And yet, as you read Psalm 22 and you read Mark 15, you will see that it is clearly talking about the sacrificial death on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may also want to read Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah, about 700 years before this, talked about the Messiah being crucified, and you can read that there. All of those predictions and prophecies from the Old Testament were fulfilled right here in Mark 15. When I was a little boy, around maybe eight or nine years old, perhaps ten, probably, probably nine or ten years old, our family went to see some other family in another state. 
And these were people that most, some of them that we had not met before, especially the one individual I'm going to mention right now. Not going to mention him by name. But it was a farm setting. I believe they raised chickens, and our family kind of like had just just gotten there pretty much. But the, the children or grandchildren of this individual uh, went in the house and told this person that that dog was back that had been, uh, I guess, sucking eggs and eating chickens. And so I thought, boy, this is a pretty big deal. You know, I'm just a little kid, right? And we're all just standing around. There's, And I want you to get the picture. There are probably 10 children all standing around in the front yard, and this this little spaniel-type dog comes up, just the sweetest-looking little dog. I have no doubt it probably was messing with the chickens, but, but this dog comes up, and he just looks completely harmless, and this person that I'm talking about came running out of the house with a shotgun, and the dog laid in front of him and cowered in front of him, and this person pulled the trigger with the um, this is the first time I had ever personally been around a firearm in my life and never had heard one personally shot. And he, he let off this big shotgun boom and blew that little dog away right, right in the middle of all of these children. That blew my mind. I, I, it just brought me to tears. I thought, what kind of monster is this? And I, I think I had to get away and go cry. It was just, it was, it was crazy. I mean, especially not only, you know, the feelings I had seeing this happen to this this poor dog. They could have just taken the dog somewhere, right? I I just could not understand that. And looking back on it, that happening with all these children. I mean, we were like within feet of this shotgun blast. I just thought, this person is crazy. And I still remember that. This has been almost 50 years ago. I still remember it like it was yesterday. It was supposed to be a happy family reunion type event. Well, that put the kibosh on that, didn't it? It did for me. And I want you to think about this. Passover among the Jewish people was to be a a wonderful remembrance of how God delivered them from slavery in Egypt, how the death angel passed over everyone who had the blood over their doorposts, the Jewish people, and the firstborn of everyone who didn't have the blood, the Egyptian people, the firstborn died. And so it, it was supposed to be a, a solemn but yet uplifting uh, feast or celebration. And here, here they are having a crucifixion at the Passover, and it doesn't phase them at all. Just like that person who ran out and killed that little dog, it meant nothing to him. Amazing how callous we can be as people. And the Jewish leadership here definitely are callous toward the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read about how Christ was crucified. Verse 22 in Mark 15. 
and they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mixed with myrrh. Now, myrrh would be like an anesthetic. But he received it not. Now, they did this probably as an act of mercy, but I think it also made their job easier that if the person were more sedated, they wouldn't have to listen to so much agony. But Christ refused that because when he went to your cross and my cross, he wanted to experience the full impact of our sin and the judgment of God against my sin and your sin on my cross and your cross. He received that in full force, the wrath of God. He did not take any anesthetic. He was not sedated. Verse 24. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. Wow. Verse 25. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Wow. All of these predictions from the Old Testament are fulfilled to the letter. Verse 29. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads as saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ of the king of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. So even in his crucifixion, the Lord is is mocked and abused. Verse 33, we are ushered into the Holy of Holies of Mark now, where Christ willingly gives his life as an innocent God-man, guilty of no sin. He took all of our sin upon himself, and he, he took the full force and fury of the wrath of God against sin and paid the price right here in the Holy of Holies. And when the sixth hour was come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. I believe this this symbolized, it literally happened. It actually became dark. I'm not saying it didn't, but I believe that the darkness symbolized God turning his back on the sun because he had become sin for us. You know, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And God could not look upon sin because sin cannot live in the presence of God. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, and this is from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by, when they heard it, said, Behold, he he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. Now this was not with the myrrh, but just something to quench his thirst. Saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. He, he released his spirit, the other gospels say. And I do want to tell you what Jesus said. The other gospels, when we read all of them, we get the whole picture of what happened here in Mark 15. We know from the gospels, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, It is finished the Greek word tetelestai. That word means that a debt that is owed is canceled. That debt is paid. It is never held against that person again. Christ paid the debt of our sin, my sin, your sin, my friend, that it would not be, quote, swept under the rug or we'll just act like that didn't happen. God judged your sin and my sin in Christ. And Christ called out with all of his strength, it is finished. Amen. What he came to do was finished. Our sins are atoned for. They are canceled. They will never be held against us. And when he cried that out, what this is saying in verse 37 is he, he, ended his own life. He released his spirit. Why? Because his mission was accomplished. What he came to do had been completely done perfectly. Verse 38, And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. This actually happened. It really did happen. But when it happened, it symbolized that now God had torn that curtain down in the temple himself because it wasn't torn from the bottom to the top by man. It was torn from the top to the bottom where only God could reach it. God tore that temple down because when uh, that veil down in the temple because when Christ paid the full price, there was now nothing to keep sinful man who trusted in Christ, from coming to the Father. Because of Christ, when we trust in Him, when we become a Christian, we can live in the presence of God. Because our sins are forgiven. They've been, like I say, not just swept under the rug or we're just going to ignore that. They've been addressed fully in Christ and we are forgiven because of Jesus. But I think also something else probably was intended here. The Jewish leadership, which were so 
focused on their uh, Passover and rituals and rules and, you know, thinking that they were doing everything just right and finally we got rid of Jesus. You know, their their precious temple, so to speak, God said, you know, you, you worship this structure, you worship rules and regulations and and religious ritual. And, and he he messed up. He tore that that veil. Uh, and that should have gotten their attention. It didn't, but it should have. Now, by the way, when you say, well, you know, what's the big deal? So, so you know, a, thir- a curtain was torn. This veil was thick. It was several feet thick, and it was high. I, I don't know how high, but it was, we're not talking about like a, you know, three-by-five curtain on your kitchen window. We're talking about a massive theater-type curtain, very thick, which was, you know, probably 10, I think it was like about 30 feet tall, and it covered the entire inside entrance to the Holy of Holies. This was not torn by a human being. This was a supernatural act of God. And it symbolized that now that through Christ, there was a new way to God, the only way to God, and that's what Jesus Christ in his finished work on the cross. So Christ's work accomplished exactly what he came to do. Now, verse 39 in Mark 15, I consider to be you know, possibly the most pivotal verse in the gospel of Mark. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out, and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. I think this centurion got saved right here, just like one of the thieves got saved on the cross. Now, Mark doesn't go into that. You have to read the other Gospels to see that. But right here, the centurion, let's face it, guys and gals, this guy was a tested combat veteran, He, I'm sure, had seen a lot of people die. He had made them die, and he had seen people die in battle. He had never seen anyone cry out, it is finished, and release his spirit and die. This got his attention. Just like the veil being torn in the temple should have gotten the attention of the religious leaders, which it didn't, this got his attention. And he cries out, truly this man was the Son of God. And I don't think he ever got away from that. And I want to believe that if he wasn't saved right here on the spot, that as soon as Christ was resurrected, I believe a transformation came in this man's life. Praise the Lord. So we see the death of Christ. And now we're going to see the burial of Christ. And I want to explain why I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. Many critics of the Bible, agnostics, atheists, and smart alecks, often use um, an excuse like, well, Jesus just swooned on the cross, uh, but he, you know, the aromatic spices revived him, and he didn't really die, but he he revived uh, from like, you know, sort of like he was in a coma and he revived. And, 
and uh, you know he went away and they hid him and they said he was alive and um, that wouldn't be very convincing, would it? And uh, or that he died and they hid his body, um, uh, or you know another excuse is given as well. When the women came on the day of the resurrection, they went to the wrong tomb, which means that later Peter and James, uh, John went to the wrong tomb, and the Romans went to the wrong tomb, and the Jewish leaders who knew where he was buried went to the wrong tomb, and so on. And just silly, silly things like that that are easy to answer. But I want to show you that Christ was literally dead and that they knew exactly where he was buried. This was not, none of this was left to chance. Verse 40, his burial. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joses and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. So there were numerous eyewitnesses. And now, when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus then Pilate marveled if he were already dead, and calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph, and he bought fine linen, and took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph beheld where he was laid. Now, this tomb that had belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, that he freely gave for the body of Christ to be buried in, and that fulfilled a prophecy, by the way, that he would be uh, buried with the rich in his death. Uh, Joseph was a wealthy man, to have a tomb like that. And we notice that when the day of the preparation, you know, getting ready for Passover, they had to get all their work done before 6 p.m. So he hurries to buy this very expensive linen, the same type of linen, by the way, that I believe probably Mark was, probably it was Mark, that the young man was wearing in the garden when they tried to grab him and he got away and they were left just holding that linen garment, same type of uh, expensive uh, linen cloth here. So Joseph, who was a member of the Sanhedrin as well, but he had not been consenting to the death of Christ, he comes and he asks for the body of Jesus. Now this is what I want you to focus on right here in verse 44. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. Now, to us who none of us have ever seen anyone crucified, well, it was extremely common around Israel. It was common anywhere that the Romans wanted to make an impression on the people they governed. Like, if you step out of line, this too will happen to you. 
So people were very careful to obey Rome. Hundreds, if not thousands, of Jewish people had already been crucified by the Romans. Rome used crucifixion because it was a public execution, and it was a very persuasive way to put to death their enemies and keep others from following them and rebelling against Rome. Crucifixion had been perfected by the Persians. When Isaiah made the prophecy that the the Messiah would be crucified, uh, Rome didn't even exist as such. And certainly the Jewish people and the Romans did not use crucifixion at that time, 700 years earlier. Well, Isaiah said he would be crucified, and sure enough, the Christ is crucified. But a crucifixion, one of the reasons it was so effective is it didn't kill people right away. They wouldn't just last usually a few days. It could be, in some cases, a few weeks before somebody died. Their body was completely uh, uh, extended from you know gravity and the joints separating and thirst, um, being out in the, the weather, especially the sun and the heat. It was a, an awful way to die. So Pilate cannot believe he's dead already? And so he certifies that by getting the one who was in charge of making sure he was dead, getting him, the centurion, and asking whether he'd been any while dead. Now remember, the centurion is an expert in death. And in the other Gospels, we know that Christ. Uh, the pericardium around the heart of Christ was punctured with that lance and blood and water came out of the wound. Anyone in the medical profession would tell you that if, if blood and water come out of a wound separated, that's a sign of death because the, the plasma and the blood are no longer mixed together you know, by the pumping heart. It's a, it's a clinical sign of death. And the centurion certified he's dead. None of this reviving stuff. I mean, if Rome was good at anything, the one thing they were good at is making sure people were dead, that they wanted dead. I mean, they were good at that. Jesus was dead, friends. He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. He wasn't in a coma. He was dead. And you'll remember, just to reinforce this from the other Gospels, that they had to break the legs of the other two that were crucified with Christ, the thieves, one who got saved and one who rejected Christ, so that they could not push up and breathe. Because by this point, if they couldn't push up, they would, they would um, be, be uh, they couldn't breathe, they suffocated. But when they came to Christ, they didn't do that to him because he was already dead. And they certified it with the piercing the pericardium. Jesus was dead. And it was officially certified. And I'll tell you what else. That centurion, if Jesus wasn't dead, he would be in big trouble. He made sure 
that Jesus was actually dead. And Joseph had to hurry out before the six o'clock hour to buy that linen, take him down and wrap him in the linen and lay him in the sepulcher that was um, basically a, a cave had been constructed that was a tomb for a wealthy person. And he rolled a stone under the door of the sepulcher, it says here in Mark. Now, this is what I want you to know. When these type of tombs were built, that stone which would cover the entrance would, would be, it would be like in a trench with maybe a, a big log holding it up in position for when it would be needed. The body was put in, they would remove that, and it would roll down the trench and seal that tomb. And we know uh, from, I believe the Gospel of John says this, if I remember correctly, it would a stone so large it would take about 20 men to move it. So it was a huge stone. Nobody just came and stole his body, and Christ didn't, uh, it wasn't like revived in the cold dampness of the tomb and, you know, got out of there somehow. This was a huge stone, and he's left there. Now, here's another thing. This was about a stone's throw from where he was crucified. In other words, from the cross, you could see the tomb. It wasn't like on the other side of Jerusalem, down 12 winding streets, you know, third row on the left, you know, hope we can find it. They were looking right at it from where the crucifixion was. So they didn't go to the wrong tomb on the resurrection morning. You, you see what I'm saying here? Jesus was actually dead. And they knew where he was buried. Wow. Verse 47, and, and the two people who would go to, on the, we're going to see this in Mark 16. The two people who would go to that tomb first are right here. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph beheld where he was laid. They didn't get this second hand or somebody told him, well, I think they put him here. They watched him taken from the cross, wrapped in the linen, placed in the tomb, stone rolled in place. In fact, on their way to the tomb, they were wondering, how are we going to move that stone? Well, you know what? We'll see this next week. But when Christ resurrected, he came through the stone. <laughs> God moved the stone later so that people could get in and see that Jesus had indeed resurrected. So the two greatest predictions of Christ from Mark 14 is death. That's been fulfilled right here. And then we're going to see in our next episode in Mark 16 that he fulfills his prediction of resurrection that he would rise from the dead, they would see him again. I, I'll tell you, friend, as I have taught through Mark here these last uh, literally 15 weeks, I've enjoyed being with you. But I was thinking yesterday as I was driving around and thinking about getting ready to do this podcast of how it has just felt like I, I have walked with Christ through all these events and I've I've been at the crucifixion, 
And in our next episode, we're going to be there after he's resurrected, and it's just going to be almost like we were there. But as we close, I want to make a special emphasis here that I think is extremely important. All of these people in Mark 15 will see Jesus again. All of the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the lawyers, uh, the centurion, the soldiers, Pilate, Barabbas, the thieves, those on each side of him, the crowd that mocked him, the crowd that cried out, crucify him. All of these people are going to see Jesus again. Those that trusted him as Savior and Lord, like the one thief, I believe the centurion, the Marys and Salome at the cross, John the disciple, uh, the other ten disciples, not including Judas, of course. The people that believed in him will bow the knee and just worship the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be great. But the others in this story that we've seen who mocked and abused and rejected Jesus and didn't have time for Jesus, they're going to bow the knee too. Oh, really, Pastor Ed? Oh, yeah. They will be forced to bow the knee, and they will be forced to admit the truth that Jesus is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the question for you today is will you bow in worship to Jesus, accepted in him, forgiven of your sins, eternal life assured for you, live with him forever in heaven? Or, because you've never quite gotten around to it, you've relied on your religion, your ritual, being a good person, trying to do more good things than bad, and all this lame stuff that people say, trying to be, quote, spiritual, and all of that. Or you're an agnostic, say, well, I'm not really sure, don't really know, yeah, whatever. Or if you're an atheist, you say, I know there's no God, I know Jesus did not rise, you'll bow. You absolutely will be forced to bow. So the question right now is, will you bow in worship? Or will you bow in condemnation? Too late. You'll have to admit it, but it will have been too late for you. My prayer for you today is if you are not a Christian already and know that you know that you know you're a Christian, that you would cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ today, like one of the thieves on the cross did, like the centurion did in recognizing who Jesus is. Confess your sins to him. Receive for yourself what he did on the cross to pay the price and the penalty of your sin and mine, and claim that for yourself. Trust in him and be saved today. Will you do that today? I want you to cry out to him to save you. If you would like to let me know you did that or you have questions about Christ and your relationship to him or about the Bible, 
email me at pastoredhill at gmail.com. I would love to answer your questions or encourage you in your walk with Christ. Thank you so much for listening. We have one more episode to go, which we will get in before Easter uh, next week. That's when we're recording this so we can rejoice in the resurrection of Christ. Please invite your friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors to This Week in the Word. They can find it the easiest way at www.dredhill.podbean.com. Remember that it's www.dr, no period after the dr, just dredhill.podbean.com. I believe we can still be found on iTunes and Google Play and who knows where else. But that's the easiest way to get there. Invite others to listen. Thank you for listening. God bless you is my prayer. In Christ's name, amen.